Thank you, Chris. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Howdy do, Mike. Uh, hey, we're doing it. We're back. We're here. We're just trying to, yeah, we're doing it. Yeah. Trying, uh, trying not to spread the Rona, just spread the love. That's what we're going for. That's what we're doing. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Auditorium 2, you look absolutely stunning. Thank you for joining us over there. Um, and then if you're joining us from home online today, thank you so much for uh, for tuning in right there. Take as much time as you need to get back with us. And whenever that is, we can't wait for it. And if you are visiting with us this morning, very impressive. You get 100 bonus spiritual points. I don't know where you can cash those in, but uh, congrats. Now, <laughs> like Chris just mentioned, we are doing a summer series called Disciple. And lucky for us, that is both a noun and a verb. So we want it we wanna know what it means to be Jesus' disciples, noun. We want to know what it means that he is our teacher, that he is our rabbi, and we're supposed to be his followers and his apprentices. Charlie and I really like that word. But disciple is also a verb. Like Chris said, it's about action. And so we want to seek to be discipled and we want to disciple others. Jesus left his followers with this at the end of Matthew's gospel when he said, go and make Disciples. He did not say go make converts or go make occasional church attendees. He said make disciples, and we are trying to consider well what that looks like. And within the scope of this, my friend Matt Williams at Grace Church a few miles down the road, pastor there, he preached a powerful message last week called A Response to Racial Injustice. And our communications team, they shared this online and we hope that you were able to watch it. And no matter where you are politically, I do encourage you to check that out. It's a very powerful call to reflection and repentance and action. Um, and he said something several times in his message that directly applies, <clears throat> directly applies to our situation. He said, racial injustice is a discipleship issue. And he's a thousand percent right. It absolutely is. And Charlie and I have talked and the pastoral team have talked and the staff have talked and we could say a lot of things right now but we want you to hear us clearly say the following. Tolerating or excusing any kind of prejudice or racial injustice is totally and absolutely out of place for a disciple of Jesus. It's sin and it's against God's heart. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Pursuing unity is the good fruit of being a disciple of Jesus. And we want you, again, to hear us say very, very clearly, as plainly as we can, our church stands against every possible kind of racial injustice, even the subtle, subconscious, passive kinds. Those are actually the most dangerous in my mind. We stand against the inexcusable deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and our hearts continue to grieve and break for those families. And we stand against all social and political systems that oppress minorities, and for any group or political expression to take advantage of this tragedy is evil and only works to cause division. Further, we stand, <clears throat> we stand with our friends at Grace Church and other like-minded churches in our community that are working to promote racial unity and reconciliation, bringing together God's people throughout the upstate so that we can experience a foretaste of what it's gonna be like in the new heavens and the new earth. In the New Testament, as the Apostle Paul confronted systemic racism between Jews and Gentiles in his day, he is direct and to the point. He says in Ephesians chapter two, Jesus himself is our peace who has made us into one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, the system that kept Jews and Gentiles apart, so that he might create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace, and so that he might reconcile us all to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the hostility, meaning gospel-believing disciples of Jesus must stand for peace and unity, especially between races, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And we must likewise stand against all systems that keep putting bricks on the dividing wall between people. So absolutely, this is a discipleship issue. And we've said discipleship is always a call to action. So I want to encourage you to a couple little practical action steps this week regarding this issue. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're white, please don't say but or what about for just a second. Please listen to the simple action step I'm offering to you. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're white, what you need to do is you need to be listening to godly black men and black women and ask them what they think about everything that's happening. Get their perspective, get their wisdom, listen to their experience. I've been trying to do this extra intentionally the past couple weeks and it's been so, so good for my soul. I know how your soul can get when you watch too much stuff on the news or Facebook or whatever. It's been good for my soul to hear their hope to hear like the fact that they're trusting God and focusing on God, that's been good for me. I was at lunch with someone this past week and a black man was our waiter and he was doing an unreal job. He actually ended up being the guy who owned the place and he just really, really liked busting tables and talking to people, my kind of guy. And I said, hey man, help me out here. I'm just a white dude trying to do my part, trying to support, give me your perspective and wisdom on all this. And he squared his shoulders at me and he pulled down his mask because he's a good employee and business owner. And he said, thank you so much. Just you asking is all I need. Thank you so much, bro. I appreciate it. And we had a really, I think, God-ordained, incredible conversation. And he also said, I love talking about these things for a lot of reasons, but one of them is I'm about to marry a white girl in two weeks. And I said, oh, nice, a little swirly ice cream cone. Really fun. That's the way to go. Fun, fun, fun. And so he probably was laughing at me and not with me, but we had an incredible, an incredible conversation. And I think that doing something like that can be helpful for you right now, going out of your way, out of your way to listen and learn from people who are different than you. And I also think if you're a follower of Jesus, it's extra valuable right now to listen to and learn from black pastors and ministry leaders. And so I have a great list here for you. You can pick from this list. I could add many, many more. Um, Just take a picture of the screen or go later on Facebook or YouTube and then screenshot, follow these people on Twitter, listen to their sermons read their blogs. I could talk about most of these at great length and how their ministry has encouraged my life. The third one on the left column, Crawford, he did my commencement address when I uh, graduated my master's degree. He's a great guy. And also, you can't not listen to, third one on the right column, people named Tabiti Anyabwile. You can't not listen to people like that. That's, That's the greatest name ever. So, Track these people down, listen to them, glean wisdom from them. I think that will be a great thing for you to do and be encouraged by their life and ministry and their hope and their perspective on all these things. So that's your homework for next week. And there may or may not, I don't know, be a quiz. We'll see. All right. Now, let's think about discipleship a little bit more in the form of the triangle that Chris just put up. We'll put it up again for you. These are the three rhythms of a disciple life with Jesus, top of the triangle, bottom right, life in community, bottom left, life on mission. And we are spending three weeks on each of these three. And to further prove Matt Williams, my friend from Grace Church, to further prove him right using our own language, 
thinking about racial harmony, when that applies to Christians, the body of Christ, that's about community, bottom right. Thinking about racial harmony with those who don't know Jesus, that's about being on mission, bottom left, and standing up for what's right in the world. Again, these are not separate and distinct conversations. So today, let's focus on the top of the triangle just a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more life with Jesus. That's what we need to talk about today. Now, um, this might just be me and my little pastor brain and in my little pastor world, but I I have a a discipleship pet peeve. And it goes a little something like this. I'll hear pastors, uh, even friends who are pastors at other churches, I'll hear them them talk or I'll hear about a new book or a new resource or this shiny, fun new program or process about discipleship. And when I ask people about it, they launch straight into something like this. They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus told us that we need to make disciples. So all you have to do is these 14 little things and it's easily replicable. And then if you share it with two people and each of those two people share it with two people, we can have the whole state of South Carolina covered in Jesus in nine hours faster than the coronavirus can get there because discipleship's a pyramid scheme. And that's how they talk. And they're so giddy about it. And I just, listen, I am pro covering the whole state in Jesus' name. I'm on that team. I'm also not opposed to tracks to run on, practical things to do. But I also wanna slow down and go, let's go back to the Bible for just a second. I wanna ask these pastors and bloggers or, or, or whoever, yes, Jesus said make disciples, so we better be all about it, but let's be all about it the way that the Bible is all about it. So tell me, ministry person, what does the Bible say about being a disciple? That's what we're kind of trying to do this summer. And so imagine this straw man caricature, which they're real. Tell me, ministry person, what does the Bible say about being a disciple? And I'll tell you exactly how long that conversation lasts. Are you ready? Here's how long it lasts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. That's how long it lasts. You ready for this? The word disciple, noun or verb, is nowhere else in the whole Bible. You get five books, and those are the only places that use the word disciple. And we got 22 more books to go in the New Testament. And so the question, what does the Bible say about being a disciple, has to include, how does the rest of the Bible talk about discipleship without using the language of discipleship? It's a massive question. Somebody go write a paper on it, get back to me with all your answers. I think, for me, the simplest way to do it is twofold. I think the family language in the Bible is part of discipleship, like how Christians are called brothers and sisters. Paul even told Timothy, I became your father in the faith. People say that that was a discipleship relationship. So I think the family language is one of them. And I think we can talk about that more when we get to the in-community thing, the in-community rhythm. But I think the other way that Paul especially talks about discipleship without using the language of discipleship is with language about the Holy Spirit. After all, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ and he ministers the presence of Jesus to us, Jesus our rabbi. And so, to be a disciple is not primarily about a program or a resource, not against those, but it's primarily about life with Jesus, and that also means life being led by the Spirit. Those two are the same thing. So we're actually gonna come back around to this relationship of being with Jesus and led by the Spirit. We're gonna talk about that more next week, but today we need to talk about one specific part of that. We need to consider how these things are supposed to make us into a Bible kind of people. Paul says that the Spirit has breathed out and uniquely inspired God's word. 
Even Peter says that the Spirit carried along the writers of Scripture so that we now have the Bible that God has always wanted us to have. And we know from nearly a dozen places, like um, Matthew 5, John 5, Luke 24, and, and other places, that the entire Bible points to Jesus, hangs on him, and is about him. He is the hero of the story of the Bible. And so here's how we get all these things, and here's how all these things add up. As disciples, doing life with Jesus and being led by the Spirit mean that we must be, should be, have to be a Scripture-saturated people. That has to be the case. Life with Jesus and being led by the Spirit, it better mean that you're going to be a Scripture-saturated apprentice of Jesus. Stop treating, I do this too, stop treating the Bible like Twitter where you're looking for one line that you already agree with, stop that. This is not about reading every day to make yourself feel more spiritual. This is about being immersed in and saturated by the truth and beauty and story of God's word. That's what we need to talk about today. If you recall week one of our series, Charlie talked about uh, the Jewish education system in the first century. And if you don't remember his sermon, there are basically three steps, three levels in the Jewish education system in the first century. Level one is like grade school. Everybody did this and you go memorize Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. And most people, like the overwhelming majority stopped after level one. Level two, this is only for the extra, like diligent and faithful the best of the best, and they would begin to memorize some of the rest of the Old Testament, some of the rest of the Hebrew Bible, and they would memorize unique uh, traditions and and rituals within Judaism at the time. And in the first century, the third level was for the best of the best of the best, less than 1% made it to this third level in the Jewish education system. And not only would they, just think about it, memorize the whole Old Testament, okay? Not only would they do that, They would also memorize various interpretations of it so that they wouldn't just know what it says on the surface, but they would know and feel its meaning as deeply as possible. And these level three people were called disciples, all right? To be a disciple means to be a person shaped by the book. But what do we do? We turn it into mailers that I get in my inbox in there and we make it into shiny programs and bullet points rather than a relationship with Jesus, a patient relationship with Jesus with an open Bible in front of us. So how do we remedy this? What should we do to become people of the book? That's what we need to think about today. And today we're actually going to answer this question a little bit differently. Usually our habit is to anchor down in just one passage of scripture and kind of uh, dig a little bit and unfold the big idea of it. <clears throat> but today, I'm gonna give us five pictures of scripture-saturated people and five responses so that we might be scripture-saturated people, scripture-saturated disciples of Jesus. So five pictures and five responses. This one will be easy to take notes on. That's, that's, uh, that's a good thing, at least. And doing these five pictures, five responses, it's gonna help us answer our question, how do we do life with Jesus and by the Spirit so that we are a Bible people? Here we go, five pictures, five responses. Picture number one, turning your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah was a preacher boy, he was a prophet in the Old Testament. God sent him to tell Israel to repent. At the time, Israel was being really, really flippant in their relationship with God. They were being dismissive. 
their idolatry was at its peak and they were not big fans of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was like, hey, stop being idolatrous. And they were like, stop it, it helps us with our politics, right? They did not like Jeremiah so much. In fact, he was eventually thrown into this pit dungeon thing for his preaching. In total, Jeremiah's preaching ministry to Israel lasted about 30 years. And you're like, well, that's, that's average. No, 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 30 years and hardly anybody cares. I go 30 minutes and I'm like, please care a little bit, right? This guy has way more patience than me. 30 years, hardly anybody's listening to him. And look what Jeremiah says concerning all these things in Jeremiah chapter 15. Look at verse 16, Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. So when God's word came to Jeremiah, you gotta get this, Jeremiah knew, hey, this word is not gonna bump me up 10 percentage points in popular opinion polls. It's not gonna do that. This word's probably gonna lead me to something like a pit dungeon. And guess what it says? It says when the word came to him, it became to him a joy and the delight of his heart. He was happy about the thing. Now, that's not what you'd expect if you know Jeremiah's story. But I love the verb in the first line of verse 16. Look, your words were found and I ate them. Hebrew word means to devour. He, he chewed on them. They were his food. He digested them. The, word, the words gave him nourishment and sustenance. And his eating led to a holy happiness for Jeremiah. Now, sometimes here's a fun Bible reading trick. <clears throat> sometimes you can take a Bible verse, flip it upside down, and uh, kind of read the negative of it. And its original meaning will hit a little bit harder. So I've done that for us for Jeremiah 15, 16. Look at the screens. Your words were found, and I sampled them somewhere in between a sniff and a nibble. And they became to me bland, and my heart stayed numb, even though you have called me by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I'm a pastor. I feel that sometimes. I feel that. Maybe you're anxious or disgruntled or stressed or frustrated more than you should be because you're eating more gossip and opinion than you are gospel and Bible. But what if we treated God's word like a meal to be savored? Or in the words of our Lord, our daily bread, what would happen? What would happen? So maybe we should take some notes from old Jeremiah here. <clears throat> Picture number two, Acts chapter 17, New Testament, New Testament, Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> Paul is in the middle of one of his missionary journeys, his second missionary journey to be precise. Luke records three of them for us in the book of Acts. Paul is cruising with his friend Silas. They have just left the uh, sketchy port city of Thessalonica and they're moving inland just a little bit to a lovely little place on the backside of Greenville called Berea. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. Looky, look, here we go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. <clears throat> what things? Things Paul's saying. Don't forget, don't forget, Paul, oh man, is a level three disciple guy. 
This guy's not grade school dropout in the Hebrew educational system. <laughs> He's best of the best of the best. He has the whole Old Testament memorized in Hebrew, likely some Aramaic, probably some Greek, and the Latin language was starting to take over. Those were the three above Jesus' head when he was nailed. So he's got the Old Testament memorized probably in several different languages. He knows every interpretive option imaginable. He's seen the risen Christ. Okay, people, right? I tell you right now, if a dude like that is teaching me, I'll go, all right, no questions. I just take your word for it. Like, I'm not gonna push back on this guy, but that wasn't the case for these people. It says these Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they daily examined the Bible to make sure that what Paul was saying was what Scripture was saying. And this word examine, <clears throat> this is an involved idea. It's not a tidy word about just your mind and rationality. They wrestled, they took notes, they asked questions, they pressed in, they investigated, they considered other interpretive options, and they did it daily. And they did it up against someone who had the entire Hebrew Bible memorized. These are my kind of people. I want to be like this. So maybe we should uh, take some notes from our friends on the backside of Greenville in Berea. Picture number three. Back to the Old Testament, go to Nehemiah chapter eight. Sorry, we're like old, new, old, new. It'll just keep you on your toes for sword drill later. Go Baptist, 1992. All right, Nehemiah. <clears throat> Nehemiah is a tricky boy. You think he's one of the prophets at the end of the Old Testament? He's actually before Esther and Job and Psalms. So if you get to Psalms, take a left, Nehemiah chapter eight. Now, Here's the deal with Nehemiah. Nehemiah's story is Israel coming home from exile and Israel's kind of experiencing a revival at the time. Corporate idolatry is in their rearview mirror. It's in their past. They're starting to recall their vocation and their identity as God's people. They just rebuilt the altar of the temple and they just rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, both of which remind them of their salvation and vocation. And the picture in Nehemiah 8 is of them rededicating themselves to God and his Word. So let's look at it. Nehemiah chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 1. Nehemiah 8, 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. <clears throat> and he read from it. Facing the square before the water gate from early in the morning till midday, that's almost six hours or so, in the presence of men and women and those who could understand in the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the Torah, book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made just for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Me'asa, uh, on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashum, Hashtag, Banana, Zechariah, and Meshalum on his left hand. <clears throat> That's a recycled joke, and it's not funny. Verse five, this is important. <clears throat> uh, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, his special uh, super pulpit there. And as he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him, amen, amen, and they lifted up their hands, and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is the most ultimate, meaningful, the word of God for the people of God. And everybody yells the reply, thanks be to God. And they raise their hands and they're so happy and crying for joy because of God's truth in scripture. They fall on their faces in gratitude because it's that precious to them. And this is a six hour thing. And here's where it's really convicting. You and I don't respond half like this when we hear the gospel of Jesus proclaimed and read. 
and these people are weeping for joy and revival, and Leviticus is being read, all right? Ezra's whipping out some Book of the Law, Numbers, and Deuteronomy here, okay? He's reading it out loud over them, and for these people, it's like fresh wind in their sails. It's like hope rising up in their hearts. And when you and I read the first five books of the Bible, one, we quit. If two, if we don't, guess why we don't? Some subconscious, like begrudging evangelical guilt. That's the only reason that we keep going. It's it. But this snapshot right here in Nehemiah 8, it proves that there's a way to read those books that leads to worship and gratitude and humility before God. And we always, always need that. All the time. And so maybe, even though it's a little strange and weird and old, we should take some notes from Ezra and Nehemiah here about what it means to be a scripture-saturated people. All right, that's picture three. We good? Let's do picture four. Go to 2 Timothy. Picture number four, 2 Timothy. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter three. Paul is a seasoned missionary and minister at this time. 2 Timothy is one of the last books that he wrote. And he's writing to the younger Timothy, and in this relationship, Paul would be the rabbi and Timothy would be the disciple. And lucky for Paul, Timothy had a great mama and grandmama and they gave him a solid foundation of Bible. They gave him a great biblical foundation. It talks about that earlier in the Timothys. <clears throat> oh, their names were also Eunice and Lois. Lois is probably the greatest grandmother name of the 20th century in my mind. We can find about that later. And so Paul doesn't have to build a biblical foundation for Timothy. Rather, here's what he gets to do in his discipleship relationship with Timothy. He gets to fan it into flame, the foundation that he already has. He gets to keep Timothy accountable to what he already knows, to continue to pursue God in Holy Scripture. That's what Paul is doing for young minister Timothy here. Second <clears throat> Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. Look at it. As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood up you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Messiah Jesus. Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's useful, has function to it for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in justice and righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I love these verses. I love, usually I think when people, when Christians think about scripture, they're like, oh, that's that thing that I'm supposed to just kind of vaguely believe and it's supposed to make me feel something spiritual. I love how Paul talks about scripture here, how it's useful, it's utilitarian, it's functional. Look, look at what he says. It makes wise, it equips, it molds, it reproves and rebukes and corrects and shapes Paul knows that Timothy <clears throat> wants this. Paul knows that Timothy has been talking about this thing his, his whole life with his mom and his grandma and, and even with Paul. And so Paul is specifically exhorting young Timothy to, hey, here's how you're, you're gonna be a faithful pastor. Stay close to scripture as the God-breathed word because that's how change happens. Not opposed to shiny programs, not opposed to it, but this is the thing that the Spirit uses to change us to make us like Jesus, Timothy. So maybe we need to take some notes on Paul's exhortation to his uh, pastor, protege, Timmy boy, here in 2 Timothy 3. Lastly, picture number five, go to John chapter six, pretty please. 
John chapter six. And looking at this passage this past week again, I was reminded about Charlie's sermon that he preached from this text in January, and it was super good, so go back and listen to that um, if that's something that you'd like to do. Charlie did also say a couple of weeks ago that as Jesus' following grew outside of the 12 disciples, remember, Jesus didn't require people to do all three levels of Jewish education. He just said, hey, come follow me. So as Jesus' following grew outside of the 12, people realized that they could be his disciple and not jump through all the hoops. And so tons of people started following Jesus everywhere. But in John chapter six, all these people are following Jesus and Jesus starts to say some really hard stuff and some weird stuff like, you can't really live until you eat my flesh and drink my blood. All right, you're like, okay, who, who are we dealing with here? Like, what's going on? Early, early people in the Roman Empire used to even call Christians cannibals because they would cite this verse from Jesus. So it's like, okay, who are we dealing with here? Take a step back. Then Jesus would say things like, you can't even come to me. The following you're doing right now, you can't even do that unless the Father who sent me draws you to me. And even people back in there are like, that smells like predestination. I know what we're doing here. Don't even, don't even mess with me. Like, still hard questions 2,000 years later, right? So Jesus is saying all this really, really hard stuff, and these people are following Jesus, and look at what happens in John 6, 66. 666 is ironic. Uh, the, the, verses were, uh, the Bible was versified later, so please don't be a, a dumb Bible conspiracy theorist. <clears throat> look at John 6, 66. After this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus looked at the 12, the inner circle. Hey, are you guys gonna leave also? I love Peter here. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the one you have to feel deeply. You have to. Even if you don't get it all the way, even if you have questions, even if you're scratching your forehead, where else are you gonna go? Like who lied to you to tell you the answers were easy? Who told you that? You think other worldviews or religions or atheism or even scientific naturalism has neat, tidy, cute answers to everything? Not a chance. But even if we have question marks, we still have a rabbi and a rescuer who loves us and wants to walk with us. Even if other people walk away because the questions might feel a little too much for them, he has the words of eternal life. I tell you right now, if you're here and you're listening to this and you're thinking about ditching relationship with Jesus because you think the world revolves around how you feel about a couple of unanswered questions, I don't wanna be mean, but I don't think you're gonna find a lot of help elsewhere. I just don't think that's gonna be the case. Where else are you gonna go? And notice the connection in the text. Look at verse 66, walked with him. That's supposed to be a positive thing. Well, how is the walking with Jesus done? Giving yourself to his words, which have eternal life. That's what we're talking about here. Walking with Jesus patiently with an open Bible in front of us, longing to be a scripture-soaked people. That's what we're here for. And not all the time, Right, not all the time, but at least maybe right here we should probably take some notes from Peter, right, and his trust in Jesus. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So five pictures of scripture-saturated people. And because discipleship includes action, Being with Jesus and being a spirit-led person are the same, and those things lead to being Bible-loving 
Scripture-soaked people, and that, that requires something out of us. So here are five parallel responses for us so that we might be that kind of people, these kind of disciples, just like the ones we looked at. Um, you're more than welcome to in your families, community groups, whatever you're doing. Uh, think of more on your own, but these are simple little things that come from me trying to think practically about the five pictures that we just looked at. So here we go. Response number one. Read the Bible at different paces. Read the Bible at different paces. Jeremiah ate God's word when it came to him. <clears throat> and you don't eat all food, <clears throat> you don't eat all food the same way. Proverbs is a snack, Romans is a steak, right? Don't eat all food the same way. Sometimes you need to read just a couple of verses, think about it, and then you need to go reread them, maybe reread them in a different translation, then you need to go find a commentary and read them again. It's a long flavor saver kind of thing. And sometimes you need to take the four tiny chapters of the book of Colossians and you need to sit down and read the whole thing in one sitting. And you know what? Even if you're a slow reader, that is 15 minutes. And if you don't have 15 minutes, we got other conversations we need to have, okay? 15 minutes. That's what you need to do. You need to experience the Bible in different ways. Read at different paces. To develop a deep-seated joy, like God's word was for Jeremiah, you have to experience it in different ways. Don't read to finish. Don't read to not feel guilty. Read to change and to be with and like Jesus. And read at different paces. Response number two. <clears throat> write and take notes in your Bible. Write and take notes in your Bible. I try not to read my personality onto other people's, but when I look at Acts 17 and these Berean people and they examine daily, these are the kinds of things I think of. <clears throat> when it says examine, it's not like a random thought drifted across the horizon of their minds. This is attentive, detailed investigation. Makes me think of somebody like writing questions in the margins of their Bible or drawing lines or connecting pieces and words and ideas, highlighting verses or phrases that are summary or that stand out. I know people who even get their Bible and they write in the margins, this is what this passage is saying about God. This is what this passage is saying about humanity or this is what this passage is saying about salvation or the church. Also, it is scientifically proven that if you write something down, you are about 55% more likely to remember it and own it and make it a part of yourself. Some studies are even as high as 70% more likely to own it and remember it. And the studies about how effective it is to type something out versus writing out are absolutely embarrassing. They're not even close. So go get a big fat Bible with big fat margins or a prayer journal thing and start scribbling. You need to process with a pen. Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite theologians and his dad told him, you're never studying unless there's a pen in your hand. You need to process with a pen what God is doing through scripture in your life. Be like these Berean people, examine, wrestle, rejoice, contemplate, consider well. I think a good way to do that is to write and take notes in your Bible or some special uh, journal thing that you carry along side of it. Response number three. Response number three. Listen to the Bible. <clears throat> That's exactly what's happening with Ezra and the 50,000 people in Nehemiah chapter eight. And for them, and we can see this in their response, <clears throat> for them there was a special kind of beauty to it to hear it like that. So you need to give it a shot. Find a way to listen to the scriptures being read out loud. Uh, one of my favorite things that my family gets to do occasionally, uh, I don't know what we call it, we just say, hey, it's Bible art time. And James, my son, and Anna Jubilee, and my wife, who's also very artistic, 
uh, they go get paper and markers and stuff and they sit down and I start reading and the visual arts are not my forte so that's why I get to be the reader and I like it and it's really fun and the only rule is you can't interrupt unless you have a question about what we are reading and I know that I'm pastor nerd Bible guy but to me it's really fun and it's a different way to experience scripture when it's read out loud and just let it wash over you. Also, <coughs> commercial. Um, the Dwell Bible app is slowly becoming one of my favorites. Got a picture of it right here for you. Dwell Bible app. That's on your Android or your uh, iOS or whatever you need. Any device. <coughs> uh, part of the conviction of the people at Dwell Bible is that the Bible was originally written to be heard and read out loud. A lot of it wasn't originally written to be studied often how we study it. And so they want to give that back to people, and you can download this. Um, I love that you can choose your reader. I was listening to First Thessalonians this past week. I can listen to like a Jamaican girl or a British dude, which makes the Bible just a little bit more fun and spicy. So you can pick your reader. You also have different options for the kind of music you can play. In the background, they have like a cello option, piano, guitar. They have like a really light old hymns option, which is the best one. Um, and so you can pick. They even have a thing <coughs> where you can have a section of meditation in between the readings. You can repeat it. And so like, let's say I want to clean the house and jam some Romans 8, and I could put on my old hymns in the background and have a 30-second med meditation time in between the Romans 8 readings. That'll make Scripture get in your soul. I think it's like a buck or something, but to me, way past worth it, so that's my commercial for the Dwell Bible out app. The, the, the options are endless, but they're trying to go, let's listen to the Bible and let's let it wash over us in that way. Response number four, get into a CBR group. Get into a CBR group. <clears throat> Probably be more popular if it was get into a CBD group. Um, <clears throat> when, Paul, <laughs> when, when Paul's encouraged, that is funny. When Paul's encouraging Timothy, <clears throat> I, I think about the ongoing conversations that Timothy had with his mom and with his grandma all of his life. Um, and then Timothy had those conversations with Paul. And then Paul and Timothy had those conversations with other people about the glory and beauty and usefulness of God's word. And and that's what we want to do here at Fellowship Greenville. CBR stands for Community Bible Reading, and it's what we've been doing as our Bible reading plan this year as a church. And hopefully, you've heard about us talk, you've heard us talk about it, and you've seen us post about it on social media. Our goal is just to stir conversations about Scripture with other people. That's all we want to do. We read. Look, look, look. One chapter a day, not hard. Nobody's trying to be an Olympic theologian or anything. You simply read your chapter and you text the people in your little group text thread what stood out to you from the chapter. And it's really cool to hear what other people think or what other people say or what, what uh, God used to grip other people's hearts. It's not about figuring out details, but communicating with other people what you read. Also, the end of next week, means it's halfway, exactly halfway through the calendar year and the last half is definitely gonna be better than the first half and maybe a way that you can make it better is by getting in a CBR group. Um, if you want to do that with people in your family or your community group or you're just like, I wanna do this and be in, be in a group, text service with somebody. Email us, contact us, let us know. Um, we also have CBR journals that you can use to write and take notes and pray in. Um, you can grab one of those that we have uh, plenty of also, if this sounds like something that you're like, man, that really would be nice and cool, but you think it's gonna be too much effort to contact us and us contact you back and do this back and forth, and you're like, well, I don't wanna bother other people and don't wanna get in their way. If that's what you're thinking, that's exactly what you need to do. Like, I don't, that might have, no, that means that you need to do something like this, and I promise it's worth it, and we can help you out, let us know, and we'll get you in a 
not CBD, a CBR group. <clears throat> All right, lastly, response number five. And the first four responses are incomplete without this one. Trust God and his word. <clears throat> Trust God and his word. This is Peter to Jesus. Where else are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. It's great to have scripture in your eyes when you read it. It's great to have it in your hands when you write about it. It's great to have it in your ears as you listen to it. It's great to have it on your lips as you talk about it. But it's all empty and void and vain and nothing if it's not in your heart. I have hidden your word in my heart, the psalmist says. If your heart is not clinging to God and his word in faith, it doesn't matter how many times a day you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how good you are at your quiet time or devotions or whatever. The God of the Bible is not primarily analyzed, okay? The God of the Bible ought to primarily be trusted and worshiped and obeyed. <clears throat> He's the source of all of life and love. Where else are you gonna go? Where? And we trust him by trusting his word. And we trust his word by trusting him. It's, it's a package deal. And so you have a decision in front of you. Are you going to be like the quote unquote disciples in John 6 who left being with Jesus just to be spectators because they had a few unanswered questions? Are you gonna do that? Or are you gonna follow him and depend on him and cast yourself on him and his mercy even with unanswered questions just like Peter? God is trustworthy beyond anything that you can fathom, beyond the past what I can fathom. And his word proves this again and again and again. And he has climactically proven this in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is the word made flesh. He's truth in a person. He is the incarnate word that is the hero of the story of the written word. And he is our champion and our hero because of his sacrificial love and grace at Calvary. He lived the sinless life that we couldn't. He died for our sin like we should have. And he was raised again, proving what to be true. God's word to be true. Proving that sin and death don't get the last word. And in the same way that the entire story of the Bible is truly about a crucified and risen Jesus as king, the entire story of your life needs to be about a crucified and risen Jesus as king. And the way that that can happen is by you trusting him, by believing him for life and salvation both now and forevermore, but by relying on him in and through and above and beyond all of the craziness in the world right now, all other persons and systems and thoughts and ideas and dreams, you rely on him and you trust in him above and beyond all of that. Jesus alone has gone through death and come out the other side victorious. And that means that he alone deserves our trust and our allegiance. And we will do well to live our lives with him and for him by being a scripture saturated people. That's part of being a disciple. Fellowship Greenville, <clears throat> you are not gonna stumble and trip your way into true discipleship. And it's not primarily gonna be a sweet new program or resource that's gonna get you there either. Discipleship is a summons on your entire life to follow the way of Jesus. 
And if we're seeking to know God by knowing his word, I believe that we will end up putting the sacrificial love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus on display on center stage in our world and in our lives. And I hope that that is what you want for for our rabbi to get the attention and not us. Here's how I'd love to close today. Go ahead and put up your uh, pens and bibles and note-taking things, et cetera, please. Um, I just wanna leave us about 30 seconds of space to take a deep breath and pray. And I would love for you to just, where you are, talk to God about how these things need to influence your life as somebody who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. After about 30 seconds or so, our worship team is gonna sing a song of blessing over you from Numbers chapter six. And here's what we want you to know and feel as we sing that God loves you, that we love you, and that we're so happy that we're a family and we're doing this discipleship thing, this following Jesus thing together. So let's take some space and talk to Jesus.